Good evening. My name is Rosemary Holt, and on behalf of the Catholic Information Center and the National Review Institute, it's my pleasure to welcome everyone who is joining us tonight, both in person and through Facebook Live, for the third installment of our three-part series, Making Citizens Great Again. Today, more than ever, Americans are asking themselves how to be truly engaged in politics. This series is exploring what it means to renew politics and develop virtuous citizens. Tonight, we will discuss virtue, statesmanship, and the renewal of politics. We are honored to have Chad Pecknold of the Catholic University of America and Stephen P. White, fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center. The panel will be moderated, moderated by Catherine G. Lo Jean Lopez, senior fellow at the National Review Institute. Please join me in welcoming our speakers this evening. Thank you, everybody. Some of you have been here for prior sessions, and some of you here for the first time. Thanks for skipping your debate pre-party to be with us. <laughs> um, and if you feel free, to, feel free to skip the debate too, and you'll, hopefully you would have been edified. Um, let me let me start with uh, Chad. Um, what's what's the problem <laughs> that has gotten us to this point of uh, I call it the election of no good choices? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, we have we have uh, I think a conspiracy by screw tape and wormwood uh, to make sure that there is no virtue at all in the uh, 2016 election. Avoid the threat of political virtue at all costs. Um, Alistair McIntyre begins after virtue with a dystopic vision of scientific knowledge that's collapsed. Uh, a, a great catastrophe happens and uh, a culture tries to put the pieces back together but it doesn't have all the knowledge so it has this very fragmented sense of, of how science works. Um, that's the situation we have now with the virtues. Um, there's a sense that um, you know that that's a that's also just a metaphor for the fall and how the fall affects us in terms of, of weakening our inclination to virtue but I think it's peculiar to our time that that we are not thinking about politics as an exercise of virtue um, and and this is bad for us uh, we, we live in a time the Augustine lived in a time with Pelagians where Pelagians wanted to be able to be good without grace and we live in the 21st century in a time of a new kind of Pelagian where you can be good without God. Um, and this is, I think, a spiritual problem for us, a spiritual crisis for Americans, uh, a turn uh, away from the common good, a turn away from political virtue is not unrelated to a turn away in the populace from God. Aquinas says that sin destroys original justice and weakens our inclination to virtue, and it leaves intact the principles constitutive of our nature. These distinctions help us think about politics, too. Without true religion, there is no true justice, and without true justice, there's no true republic in the highest sense, as Augustine taught. But even without true religion, virtue is possible. As Augustine says, not even the iniquity of sin destroys the conscience. And it's not accidental that in this election we have heard a lot about voting your conscience. 
Augustine and Aquinas both understand that the just regime depends on the just man, the person whose life is ordered to the common good, the highest good as well. This is what makes politics a noble enterprise. But in this election, it doesn't seem like politics is that noble. Of course, Christianity greatly enhances um, what Athens thinks about the classical virtues, what Rome thinks about the classical virtues. Augustine would say that God allowed the Roman Republic to live according to civic virtues so that the world would see how much greater the Christian virtues were, that the Christian virtues can fructify and elevate. So what are the virtues that can be fructified and elevated in this current election? It's hard to say. It's hard to say what kind of virtues are on display that Christianity could infuse themselves into, uh, that, that uh, our spiritual crisis is very much like a Pelagian one, in that we want political happiness, but we don't want to be contemplative. We don't want to reflect on first principles. We want to be good. We want the happiness that a common good would bring, but all we are interested in is self-interest individualism. These deceptions in our politics make us sad and sick. Augustine's really critical of the Roman virtue of honor, if you've read City of God. It's not because he thinks there's no such thing as a virtue of honor, but or that he thinks uh, that there's no virtue at all without Christianity. But Romans don't understand the proper referent for the virtue of honor. And so the virtue of honor never hits its target in Augustine's critique of honor. It's always collapsing in on itself. Now, today we could say something about liberalism's most important virtue, toleration. Toleration is modern liberalism's premier virtue. It's the premier virtue of all liberal cultures. And here I think Augustine's <coughs> critique of Roman honor holds a fortiori. Toleration is constantly collapsing in on itself because it has no teleology. It's always collapsing in on itself because it's forgotten God, it's forgotten charity, it's forgotten the very idea of toleration which enters into the Western imagination through Constantine's Edict of Toleration brought an end to state persecution. This was a triumph for the freedom of the church, but toleration is no longer such a triumph. Toleration is no longer freedom from persecution, but often its cause. As Bishop James Conley of Nebraska put it recently, tolerance is considered a great virtue in our culture unless you hold a politically incorrect position. Which is to say that toleration is constantly collapsing too, collapsing in on itself, demonstrating an inherent instability in liberalism itself, an instability which, without true religion and true virtue, constantly turn illiberal, constantly turn nasty, brutish, cruel, disciplinary, and ultimately intolerant of anyone who dissents from the pieties of liberalism. Whether it's honor and pride in a Roman context or tolerance and pride in a liberal one, we should learn what both Augustine and Aquinas and Tocqueville teach us namely that our virtues and our religion need a truly transcendent reference. The imminent frame of an exclusive humanism hurts us, it pulls us down, it curves in on us, misdirecting our yearning for the highest good 
and completely distorting how we conceive of the common good. No wonder we are at war with ourselves in America. Virtuous citizens, then, I want to say, to start us off, should want greatness for their country. They should want greatness for their nation in three ways. One, we need to recover our desire for a, the common good of the nation to be rooted in the moral law. Whatever we want to say about the flaws of our founding, they all understood that without reference to an eternal moral law, there will be no common good, and without the common good, there'll be no nation. Secondly, we should see that at the heart of the common good is the human person, the imago dei, and the family, which is the basic cell of human society, always prior to and ultimately above our politics. The virtuous citizen should be most protective of the human person and encourage, and encourage those virtues which make happy the human community. Thirdly, and finally, the virtuous citizen should be a zealous defender of the faith. I think this goes without saying for Christians. Some will say we should be zealous defenders only of true religion, only defend the freedom of the Catholic Church. In a majority Catholic country, I suppose one might be able to say that in times gone by, but then we would still have to decide how our polity was going to treat those who didn't adhere to the true religion. Could a person be virtuous under those circumstances? My answer is yes. In a limited but real way, non-Christians are capable of acquiring a virtue which recognizes the good of religion, which defends faith in a transcendent end which we could call God. This is what many citizens currently oppose. Let's call them late liberal authoritarians. They actually treat certain deconstructive and destructive progressive claims about the human person, the family, and faith as self-evident truths which every person must assent to or hold their peace. They have a faith in progress, but it is progress on an imminent frame which opposes first principles as well as transcendent ends. It is itself a false religion in the sense that it doesn't attach us to anything real or anything eternal or transcendent, but is jealous of any competing religious claim which does. So religious liberty really depends on all citizens recognizing the truth of transcendence. This itself is a political virtue, which is to say, recognize God. This failure to recognize God, if only a rational recognition of God's existence risks constant moral and political collapse, instability, and vicious moral solipsism. I think we're witnessing this in the battles we've been having over religious liberty. But the battles we're having over religious liberty are very much tied to a crisis of virtue in our culture. The post-religious right, so-called, and the post-religious left show us that a post-religious America will be nasty, brutish, and short. A post-religious America will not be great. As Tocqueville knew, America could easily become split between those attached by virtue and true religion and those who oppose Christianity. This division would come as the result of a soft despotism worse than any, other, any hard despotism of the past, precisely because it began in our hearts 
and in the habits of our hearts, a despotism that begins both in our intellect and will in our very souls, a despotism that spreads through a majority of souls and then ruthlessly rules. Tocqueville's antidote, and we very much want and need an antidote to this dystopic possibility or prophecy, was precisely those American habits he saw, habits of association, of neighbor love, those habits of religious devotion that he thought made American democracy so different from the revolutionary sorts he witnessed on the continent. The virtuous citizen is always possible, always possible because while weakened by sin, we all of us have an inclination to virtue. We are made to desire the good that makes us happy. The virtuous citizen is the person who thinks not about their own interests, but the common good, not about an affirmation of their own identity, but the dignity of the human person as God's image and likeness, not about what is owed to them, but what we owe to our creator and our fellow citizens. There's a greatness in this humility that recognizes we need one another and we need God. This is what will make great citizens. This is what will make America great. Tocqueville, towards the end of Democracy in America, wrote, it is difficult indeed to imagine how men who have completely given up the habit of self-government could successfully choose those who should do it for them. Thank you. Thanks, Chad. <clears throat> Had you not gone to the antidote, I was thinking, well, at least it'll be short. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, Stephen. Um, it's uh, tough to follow this kind of eloquence. Um, it, it, I, he, he's trying to live up to John well, Harvey, I, who I, I also, Cicero in his I also, second sentence <laughs> three weeks ago. Three weeks I ago. wanted to. I failed to quote Cicero. <laughs> I, want, I wanted to, to point out that, that, um, that th this account of, of not only where we are, but, but where we should go, uh, comes from someone who, who um, called my book an indispensable guide for Catholic citizens. Uh, <laughs> uh, well, no, so much for shameless plugs. The, 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 the question of citizenship, on sale on Amazon. I think, right, yes, sorry, on sale, on sale on Amazon. Red, white, blue, and Catholic. Amazon.com. And, and available at the Catholic Information Center. Um, you can be forced to do that. Yes, well, there you go. 9.95? The, the, the question of what, um, what our citizenship consists in, the question of what it needs to be directed <laughs> toward are important. Um, and they rely, as we've heard not just now, but in the, the, the previous two installments of this, of this uh, event, uh, they rely on virtue to a great degree. Um, one of the questions that's hard to address is where do we find uh, statesmen possessed of these virtues um, uh, and, and what would that person even look like uh, who is this person that we're looking for these these people that we're looking for who can lead us um, uh, in a better direction who can transform our politics 
Um, I want to talk a little bit about that, um, but I want to begin with a warning, not, not to diminish the importance of our political leaders, not to diminish the importance of statesmanship in any way. Um, we have to be careful these days uh, in a country where there's uh, an increasing bifurcation, a divide between sort of individual autonomy on the one hand and sort of the state takes care of everything else on the other hand. There's a danger in looking to our politicians, um, to our statesmen and women, and expecting them to take care of problems that, that are not solvable by the state. Pro expecting them to solve problems that are really problems of character and problems of soul. Um, and the law can certainly shape us and be uh, an aid in our moral development um, and, and our journey towards hopefully some happiness in this life, but ultimately towards eternal happiness in heaven. The law can be an aid in that, um, but it can't replace our, our, our own work and our own efforts. Um, so I want to begin with that caveat. It's easy to blame bad politicians or the lack of good politicians. Um, uh, and it's easy to do that in a way that deflects attention from our own failings, our own um, vices, um, our own sins. The Catholic social principles of subsidiarity and solidarity point to this a little bit. Um, the, the, the common good can suffer when, when government intrudes into places where it doesn't belong. We would talk, we would talk about subsidiarity sometimes and we, the, this idea that, that societies of a higher order shouldn't interfere with the proper or, uh, functioning of societies of a lower order. Um, but when we fail in our obligations at the lower level, the level of civil society, the level of family, a parish, a church, of neighborhoods, when we fail to fulfill our obligations, to fail to, feel, to meet the needs of, of, our, of our society, to those institutions to which we belong, mm -hmm. um, by birth or by choice, um, when we leave slack, when we leave a gaping hole in the social fabric, something steps in to fill, and usually that's, go that's government. Um, so we, we don't get off the hook on this. It's not enough to stand, stand aside and complain about all the people who aren't fixing our broken world for us. Um, we too are called to be leaven. Um, so with that, that caveat, I, I want to, to, to try and sketch out broadly what, what we might expect a good statesman to be, and perhaps just at least to co contrast it to what we often expect of our statesmen now. Um, in, in the first event, we heard uh, uh, a discussion of, of educating for virtue, of what is required to, to form men and women to form citizens who are capable of living their freedom well, who are capable of living lives that are worthy of the name human, uh, in, which, in which what is good in us is, is uh, strengthened and, and, and what is not good, uh, our sin, is, is mitigated against. Um, it's important for a statesman to understand this kind of education, both so that they can work to uh, develop virtues in themselves, um, but also so that you can't expect someone to try and shape um, the character of a people through the laws or to, to lead people in a way that is virtuous if they don't understand how people acquire virtue or even what virtue is. Um, our world, I'm convinced our world, insofar as we even talk about virtue, really what we talk about most of the time when we talk about virtue isn't virtue, it's talent. We love 
talent. Um, I remember when I was a young man, I was offended. I was a big Chicago Bulls fan, as all right-thinking people are. <laughs> and, and Michael Jordan, I think he had retired or retired again. Or, but I remember some commentator said, Michael Jordan was a supremely talented overachiever. And I was really offended by this. I wanted to believe that Michael Jordan was just sort of this demigod <coughs> whose everything he did was his because that's just the way he was. And as I got older, I realized, well, no, no, this was required work. It wasn't just that he was talented and showed up, right? I think often we think of, of virtues as simply talents. You got it or you don't. And, and, and it diminishes the, the degree to which a, a work over time, an effort over time to build certain habits is necessary. Um, I think this is uh, exacerbated by our, you know, we tell all our special snowflakes, you know, follow, you know, use your talents well. Well, using your talents well is a very good thing. But it can also become an excuse to find what's easiest for you, what you are naturally good at, and just do that. Which is, in a sense, take the path of least resistance. Um, and it, it's a way of, of making us feel good about what we're good at innately and gets us off the hook of trying to really work on the things that maybe we're really not very good at. Um, it turns the work of building uh, habits and changing behavior and, and cultivating our souls, shaping our souls and those of, of those around us, um, and replaces it with sort of a celebration of where we already are. Uh, you don't get to be better by celebrating where you already are. Um, so a statesman has to understand these things, not because he's going to be the primary formator of young souls, uh, uh, but because he has to understand the, the real dynamics of, of how human beings grow, how we struggle, and, and, and what is required to overcome our, our failings and our weaknesses. Um, he has to understand the reality of the human situation, the human condition. If he's to govern it, to propose laws or, or systems that will help human beings live together better, it would help if, if, if he were to understand human beings. Mm -hmm. This is part of the reason why Catholic social teaching speaks so much about anthropology. It's hard to know what we owe to one another if we don't understand what, we each, what each of us is, what we are. Um, so we have to understand virtue. Our statesman needs to understand virtue. Um, last week, we heard about the spaces that w in, in, which, in which virtue can thrive, where virtue can be learned and thrive. The statesman has to understand this, too. He has to understand what virtue is. How, how it is shaped, uh, how, how it is instilled in others. If society exists to help us live well, then understanding the different parts of society and the role that they play, the proper role that they play because of the kinds of societies that they are, is vitally important for a statesman. In our particular system, this means understanding and acknowledging the limits, not only of the federal government, uh, but the limits of law itself. Uh, a government that presumes to govern every aspect of human life is usurping the proper authority uh, of, of, of natural human institutions that are not just more efficient or better placed to, to care for certain human needs, um, but are properly ordered to addressing those needs in particular. I think of the family. Right? I, have, uh, I have authority over and responsibility for my children by virtue of the fact that they're my children. Not because someone uh, deputized me or because someone gave me the authority so that I could efficiently administer some good of the state. No, I'm their dad. 
And that's why I have authority. I have rights and responsibilities with respect to them. The church has rights and responsibilities proper to it by the kind, by the, the kind of thing it is. Um, uh, we owe to God something in justice. We call this religion. Um, that is, that is a, a, a function of justice or, or an aspect of justice that can't be fulfilled if the church is not allowed to be what the church needs to be. Um, Pope Francis spoke movingly on this in his first, his first, very first homily after, after he was elected, in fact. He spoke to the cardinal electors. He, spoke, he talked about the, the work that the church does and how important it is, the work, the, 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 the building up of, of the social fabric and all the good, the good work that the church does. And he says, this is very important. The church must do these things. But if that's all that the church does, if she does that but doesn't proclaim Christ, doesn't proclaim the full truth, um, uh, the, in the light of which we understand human, being, human nature fully. If she doesn't proclaim that, then she's just an NGO, just a compassionate NGO, which is nice, but that's not the bride of Christ. That's not the one thing that only the church can be. Uh, and he went a, fence, uh, a step further. He said when the church becomes just a compassionate NGO, when she does good social work but doesn't do the work that is exclusive to and the, the, the church and what only the church can do, when she does that, she, be, she takes on a, a demonic worldliness. Um, Society needs the church to be able to be the church. Uh, and so the, the statesman will understand where virtue comes from, but he'll also understand the different, different areas in which um, uh, virtue in all of its forms can flourish and, and which institutions are best for, um, for, for, uh, for instilling which kinds of virtues and what, the institutions in which certain kinds of virtues are best manifested and protected. He'll understand the fabric of civil society, um, which is where our, li our virtues live well, manifest themselves most, uh, um, most prominently. Um, and then the, th the, th the third area I think that we have to acknowledge is that we, we have to not simply look for someone who is uh, smart, not simply someone who who checks the right boxes. I think right now when we, 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 when we look at uh, who is going to represent us in government, whether it's at the presidential level or at any other level, we usually approach it from, from a sort of a, a, the standpoint of a, a sort of a policy scorecard. And there are certain, certain policies or issues that might be uh, sort of deal breakers, abortion, for example, and if they're pro-abortion, then we, okay, we, that, they, don't, they don't pass that muster. But then you take the rest of them, you sort of perform some sort of Catholic version of utilitarian calculus and say, see who measures up better. I, and that, that kind of judgment is important. I don't, wanna, I don't want to suggest that it's not or that it's inappropriate. But if that's the only way that we evaluate um, uh, those who represent us, then we, we, we succumb to a, sort of a myopic, a very narrow vision of what it is that the statesman is and ought to be. Um, so we, we need to look for people who are humble in their virtue, someone who understands their own limitations, someone who doesn't propose to be our savior, um, someone who has uh, not just the ability to say the right things convincingly, but someone who has demonstrated a willingness to shape themselves in a way that makes them best able to judge what they ought to judge and to, to, to have the humility to say, that's not my place. Um, so we need to look for statesmen who have a proper humility. 
um, the courage to, to lead when leadership is necessary, um, but also the, 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 the self-restraint to, to, to not be um, compromised by, by the power um, and the authority that we would vest in them, whether uh, trying to turn that into personal gain or, or using that to try and sort of reshape the world in their, in their own image, which is a great temptation. Um, so I think that, I don't, that, I'm not going to give you a name now, who do I think that is? But, but, no, but I'm not going to, but, but, but I, think, I think it's important uh, w without sort of, sort of uh, trying to come up with sort of the imaginary best, your best imaginable prince or king to rule over us. It is important to think about what ought we be looking for uh, in, in a statesman, in, in political leaders. Um, we're not going to get them if we don't know what we're looking for. Um, and statesmen and leaders like that aren't going to step up and, 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 and come onto the scene um, if, if no one has any idea what, what a proper statesman ought to look like. Um, and so it's incumbent upon us uh, to, to insist on that. We might not get it, maybe not now, maybe not for a long time, but to insist on that. Keep looking for it. Um, keep expecting it. Keep the expectations high. Don't give in to this sort of settling for low expectations. Don't, don't just sort of walk away because things aren't perfect. Um, don't give in to the temptation of cynicism or despair or politics. We have to love the world as we find it, not the world as we wish it would be. Um, uh, but don't sell ourselves or our nation short by, by having low expectations. On this humility point, oddly, maybe the most hopeful moment of this election campaign was when Gary Johnson, the libertarian candidate, froze or, or didn't know what Aleppo was. And, and he just apologized. And, and I noticed all these people retweeting it and saying, good for you. And, and it was like there was this very clear desire for somebody who can say, yeah, I made a mistake, or yeah, I should have known it, and I didn't. Um, we, we, of course, are living in an election, and it's not, it's not just these two candidates, but in an election cycle where there is no humility. And, and, and you hit on the point, Steve, that, that uh, that's our fault, too. Because, and, and, and it's sort of across the board. One of my biggest pet peeves is, is listening to Catholics complain about their bishops. And you know they're they're sure there are things to criticize and complain about, but but you know what are, what are you doing in your parish is you know generally my first question. What are you doing to make make circumstances better? And, we're, and we do have this instinct where whereas we we used to want to build stuff, now we want somebody else to fix the problem. How do we get out of this problem that this reflex where we expect politicians to be saviors? Chad. I mean, I, I just keep thinking about virtue signaling and this phenomena of virtue signaling. That everyone, here we are in what I take to be a massive crisis of the virtues in our political environment. And this phrase, virtue signaling, that wasn't on before and now it's on, isn't it? Um, you do sound more authoritative. Well, did you, could you hear me? Now I'm worried that you didn't hear me before. Okay. Um, just all your students worry, watching I, on live stream. I told them you were out. Okay, good. Yeah, <laughs> thanks. Um, virtue signaling is this, um, 
it kind of means the opposite of what it is because it's a bit like what you're saying. Um, vir virtue signaling is actually indicating that you have these virtues that are intended to puff you up. You know, virtue signaling is really about the self and the pride of the self and the image of the self. And that seems to be like what we've settled for in politics is not virtue, but virtue signaling. So somehow communicating that there is this facade that is acceptable to you. I can stand up at the podium and look like that thing you call a president. Um, but in fact, there's no, that's just an empty shell. There's no content to it. And there's no humility to recognize that in order to acquire the content of virtue, you actually wouldn't virtue signal. <laughs> you know, you, in order to acquire it, you would actually be humble and say, well, this is something that I continually work at. Michael Jordan, I'm an overachiever. I'm constantly working at, you know, the mean between excessiveness and defect. You know, I'm constantly working at whatever it is this point is in my family, on the playground, in the university, in my workplace. Um, uh, in church, uh, and and these are places where we probably won't virtue signal a lot because everyone has work to do and there's no time to virtue signal. But on Twitter, on in our columns, in on TV, we're going to virtue signal all the time because we're promoting this thing that we don't have and we can't say we don't have it. And I think this is a kind of emblematic of the crisis we find ourselves is we want the virtue, we want the common good, we want the happiness it brings, we want wise and just politicians, but we don't have it, and we want to pretend that we do, and that's a real problem for us to say. Yeah, on, that, on that point, I think sometimes we, we, we um, I don't think that the virtue signaling is always, um, uh, those who signal virtues they don't have aren't always aware that they don't have them. I mean, we're so sure. so in the sense in the sense in the sense that I think we, we, we often mistake virtue for but in fact they for, don't for, for for being exclusively a kind of knowledge. I know that something is good, and if you ask me, I would tell you that that is good, and therefore that is a virtue. But that's totally different than actually having the virtue. I can list you virtues that I know are good and that I'm working, but it doesn't mean I have them. Um, and I, I think this is, this is sort of what I meant by talent. We, like, we, we, we think that there's just sort of natural states and, and, and we, we undersell our ability to improve ourselves and to help others become more like we're supposed to be. Mm -hmm. The other side of that is we forget that we can become really, really bad versions of what a human being is supposed to be. You know, almost everybody will tell you they're a pretty good person. Yeah, well, yeah, but I, I, mean, I mean, I do this and that, and I broke every single commandment in the book. But, but, but I mean, but basically, I'm a good person. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, what is it you think a bad person looks like? I mean, how would you? So, and, and it, it 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 inoculates us against so this this introspection. You know, we've got talents. Some people are good at some things. Some people aren't. And knowing the difference, knowing the difference between right and wrong is sufficient for virtue. Well, no, it's a precondition, perhaps, but that's just not enough. Um, Okay, so that's where do how do we fix this problem? Uh, it's very difficult to uh, not impossible. Um, it's very difficult to instill virtue in people who uh, have made it to adulthood um, without any virtues. Um, I, education is profoundly important, um, in particular, and this is the one point I want to emphasize. 
um, is the idea that parents are the primary educators of their children. Uh, e even among good and faithful Catholics, people who understand a lot of this stuff already, expecting someone else to, to, to be the primary formator of your child is, is, is a huge risk. If you're waiting until your kid is five and they're going into to kindergarten to start shaping their soul, mm -hmm. you're, 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 you're giving the devil five years. Kids are going to learn. They're going to learn something, uh, whether it's what you want them to learn or not. Um, so you might as well give them something good to learn. Taking education seriously, not just in accumulating useful knowledge, which is useful. Um, the idea of education as formation taken very seriously, beginning in the home, and especially in, in young adulthood. Um, if you're waiting until kids are 18 or 22 mm -hmm. or 30 to try and sort of develop, they, they've already been formed to a large degree. And like I said, it's not hopeless, but you're starting way behind. Um, and I, I think this is, this, is, this is where it has to start. Um, it, you know, talking about citizenship and going immediately to you know, <laughs> childhood and elementary education, it, seems in a sort of sense an easy but impossibly hopeless answer. Uh, but it's got to start there. I mean, this is Aristotle begins here, right? Self-rule begins with, you know, an intellectual mastery over one's passions. And this is also what you teach your children. I mean, we just had our advisory with our son's school today and talking over these things with his teacher and, and really thinking about what sort of virtues he needed to develop, you know, in order to have mastery over certain passions. And this, these are the habits of the heart that Tocqueville talks about, it seems to me, is having this kind of self-rule that you communicate to your children. We, in our educational system, I think, do not think enough about the Catholic Church's teaching that the that the, pri the primary educators are the parents. Um, I think this has come into our policy discussions a little bit this year maybe, but um, it hasn't been the norm. The, the norm has been a different model for education in which you hand your kids over. Uh, that's, that's kind of the, the cessation of self-rule right there. Is your, you know, I'm not, we, we're gonna give you our kids and you, you form them because um, you're going to prepare them for being the kind of citizens you need. Um, I think this is, this is kind of this fundamental link that we have to recover, is this recovery of the, of the family as the primary formators who work with the schools to form our children and the virtues for self-rule. This is what Aristotle, forget religion for a second, that is the virtue that you need for politics. And if you have a citizenry that is no longer uh, acquiring that, those habits of self-rule, you're going to get uh, the sheep. The sheep problem is, is the big one that Tocqueville fears, is that we all, we're all sheep and we want to elect a shepherd, uh, and this is bad for a republic. Or someone who's very entertaining would be the fallback, I guess. Pa passive in, re in response to, you know, as he, as he puts it, you know, that, that we've lost, if we lose the habits of self-government and then we every four years go in and make the check a box to, that's our, that's our account of self-rule. Mm -hmm. And then we go back to a state of dependence, Tocqueville says. Uh, that, that's a very bad state. That is not a healthy republic. A healthy republic does not 
sit in dependence for four years and then make one bold, forceful move towards the ballot box. And you, you've made this point before, Steve, in your, in your book, um, that the most important thing that you, the, the most important civic action isn't necessarily voting in a presidential election, which is the way, I mean, that is That's sort the most of the hopeful thing you've said, Kathy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I, I yeah, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm always careful to, 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 to qualify that. It's not that voting is not important, and it's not that we can say, well, there's all this other stuff, and so therefore voting is, is secondary. Voting is very important, and it's one of the primary expressions of our, of our responsibility and our rights as citizens. Um, but the fact is that most of the work of citizenship, the little stuff, the everyday stuff, the character formation, the, the, the building of virtue or the building of vice, happens long before we set foot in the voting booth. So we can't just sort of, if we only focus on pulling the lever for this person or that person, I've never actually pulled a lever, have you? Wouldn't that be pulling awesome? The, I think the this would actually be better for self-rule if we returned <laughs> to the lever. More effort. <laughs> <laughs> I usually just write the name on a shell. And, um, so. <laughs> so the, 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 if, if, we, if we look at voting as the, the exclusive expression of our citizenship, then we're missing out on, on, on most of our obligations to our society and to those around us. Um, uh, you know, I think it's, it's, it's important to remember this. To get back to the, the education question, I mean, I, I, I don't know if you've heard this. I've heard it more times than I can count. You know, some young person, a good person, grows up, uh, goes uh, in their 20s, they get out of college, they stop going to mass, you know, they're living with their, their girlfriend or boyfriend or whatever, and, then, and their parents are sort of, you know, they're, they're still pretty good people, but I don't know what went, went wrong, they're not, really, they're not really living their faith, and they're, they're, you know, they're the nuns, right? They, well, and then they say, I don't know what happened. They went to Catholic school. If you think they're just sending your child to a school, even a very good Catholic school that's got Saint something in the name. I outsourced. Right. I outsourced to the right people. Well, look, it's the role of mentors and good teachers is extremely important. I think most of us here can point to a teacher or a mentor that we had that really sort of um, either taught us something new, taught us a new way of looking at, 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 at the world or at a certain topic, or really sort of lit a fire in us and got us excited or enthusiastic about something. Um, but most teachers you have for a year or two, or maybe four, okay, you see your parents every day, hopefully, um, for about 18 years at least. I mean, you spend so much more time at home and around, that the, the formation that happens there that is not simply instruction, but is, but is teaching by example. Um, I mean, anyone who has kids knows this. You see your children in you, and sometimes it's hilarious and flattering, and sometimes it's horrifying, because your, <laughs> your kids hold up a mirror to you, and you see all of your own vices. Um, and, and, and you see your own impatience in them, and you mm -hmm. see your, you know, and, 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 and so there's this, this idea, if we just sort of check all the right educational boxes, they'll come out as good and responsible citizens. No, they start as tyrants. Right? They start as, as bundles of willfulness and selfishness, and they have to be taught how not to be that way. Look, we're fighting against the fall here, all right? So thank goodness we have grace on our side, um, but it takes a lot of work. There's a strong current pushing the other way. Um, uh, and sort of treading water in a rushing stream isn't, isn't going to help you much. Um, 
So I think it, it's really crucial um, to, 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 for parents to pay close attention to how they're forming their children and, not, and to think about it ahead of time and not just sort of jump into it and sort of figure it out by the time that, you know, when, once you start noticing vices in your children to think, hey, gosh, maybe we should have said about this a different way. Um, it helps in this, and I, then we can move on, but it helps in this to see marriage not as sort of just a default, uh, uh, but as a vocation. A lot of times we think of vocation as something that's for people who become priests or nuns, right? We all have vocations, and those of us who are married have a vocation. This is our mission in life, right? To, to be a spouse to this person to whom we have bond our, bonded ourselves forever, or for this life, and, and a big part of that is the begetting and rearing of children, that this is the mission that we're on, um, uh, and that that means that we have to take their formation seriously. It also means that we have to take our own formation seriously. I can't be a good model to my children if I'm riddled with vice, if I'm bringing filth into the home, if I'm lazy, if I'm whatever, and then expect my children to be better. So there's, there's, a, there's forming others for character, but also striving. And in, in, in this is one of the good things about marriage is that spouses reflect back to each other um, uh, or, or, or they give constructive feedback to each other um, <laughs> about virtues and vices, about you know, dusting the bookshelves or taking out the trash, and 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 that's good. You need someone to be to be to chip off your 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 jagged edges and to help you be a better person for for your sake, for the sake of your marriage, and for the sake of your kids. So. And I think we don't we don't like suffering. We well, and, and, <laughs> and and we want to exit it, but it's the suffering actually that takes the jagged edges off. You know, it's, it's the, whether it's the workplace, whether it's politics, whether it's marriage. <laughs> I was going to say, so this is going to help us in the end. The yeah. Election I mean, Augustus says it doesn't matter what, where your suffering is or what your suffering is. It matters what it's doing to you, what, it's, what kind of character it's forming in you. And this is one of the gifts of marriage, actually, is that the, the bond keeps you in there for the hard bits because you want to be in there for the good bits. And that's good for your souls. That's good for your character and it's good for your kids to see you work through hard stuff and to uh, respond well to suffering and to face it and not to run away from it. And I think this is also true in our American context is America is facing enormous suffering, enormous suffering, and we shouldn't run away from it. We shouldn't run away from the challenges that face us. We should run to them. So uh, our first installment, we talked with John Garvey from Catholic University and Steve Minnis from Benedictine College about virtue on campus. And, and um, Steve described and, and, and John re reflected similar things about Catholic University that like virtue is contagious there. It's like cool. You know, it's like, it becomes normal after a while mm -hmm. if people are, are if, if students are living the good life on, on, on campus. Um, is, it, is it realistic that good kids from good families who go to good schools will actually want to go into politics when it's not considered a noble calling right now? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, it's something, it's something I always have uh, encouraged, actually, Will to go into, and he always gives the appropriate responses. No, that seems way too hard. Um, politics, politics is a, a very difficult vocation to follow, um, and most people are not called to it. They, they are attracted to it for various reasons, but 
I think cultivating a sense in our kids of vocation um, and upholding politics as a noble endeavor, those two things create the possibility that God is calling somebody to this noble vocation. Um, I, because being a yeah. doctor is hard too. I'm sure exactly. that too. Exactly. You know. <laughs> but it's worth doing. Um, you know, he he meant it in like it's too hard because you're going to get slaughtered and you have to be on right. a campaign trail all the time and fundraise, etc. But you're right. Every 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 job is hard. But I don't think we have uh, enough people who feel they have a vocation to to. Uh, and what is their vocation to? What is the purpose of politics? And being able to teach our kids what the purpose of politics is, that politics isn't um, something which is to envelop us, but is something which serves a common good, which is prior to politics and transcends politics. That's what they need to hear and to see if they have a vocation to it. Um, we have a few minutes, so I wanted to open it up for questions. Yeah. And actually. For the <clears throat> hey, I didn't use one. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I thought your point before about humility being an important um, virtue of a statesman is was, was very dead on. But in my experience and from what I can see, uh, development or at least real humility is um, antithetical to succeeding in politics where you need to trumpet your accomplishments and you also always need to have an answer to everything. Otherwise, it just looks like you're not prepared or, you know, trying very hard. Um, and so I was wondering, like, what would be a good, um, is this working? I don't know, can people hear me? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, speak into it for the re recording. Okay, but what would be a, a good way of kind of ferreting out true humility if we accept as a premise that there, there needs to be this sort of display of non-humility in order to succeed in at least the, the current political arena? And, and, and this is just one possible idea that came to me um, when your counterpart was speaking, which is that uh, if people were to showcase their responses to suffering, I mean, in a way that it wasn't, you know, I, I had this bad thing happen to me and I overcame it, now I'm awesome. But, you know, this is, this is how uh, suffering influenced my life and this is the wisdom that I gained. I don't know if that would be something that politicians could realistically, authentically display, but maybe that would be one way of getting at it. Um. Yeah. So all the the way we the way we choose presidents, even the way we choose nominees, is imperfect. Let's let's say um, from the point of view of, of um, which af human attributes are highlighted and which ones aren't. Um, he, part of the problem, and, and simply show, showcasing humility, I don't necessarily think would solve the problem because there are lots of people who can get pictures taken ladling out soup at the soup kitchen or kissing babies or whatever. They do that already. Um, uh, but I think, I think here's, here's the thing, is, it, is that true humility is not, does not consist in sort of not being noticed. Um, it's in having an accurate assessment of who you are, what your strengths and weaknesses are. First, before God, as a creature and a sinner before God. Um, but also in relation to, to uh, you know, your own life and your, and your fellow men and women. Um, you know, that's an important virtue to have. How you sort of, what the litmus test for that kind of humility is, 
I don't know. I mean, I think part of the problem is that the things, the virtues we're talking about are very difficult to have clear litmus tests for. Um, there's a certain uh, sobriety that comes from, from a, a truly humble person, and, but also a certain kind of, of ease and self-possession and joy. They're not ashamed when they don't know something. They're not, they're not, they don't, they're not someone who always has the perfect answer for everything. Um, one of the things I find endlessly irritating about our, our contemporary politics and, and how our politics are handled in the media is that everybody's expected to have a definitive opinion about everything. Not just an opinion, but the absolute correct opinion about everything. As if every single thing that's ever happened is itself some sort of litmus test for political right thinking. And it's really destructive um, because it, it's, it's very conducive to a lack of humility, to people convincing themselves that they do in fact have something to say about everything, um, when often they don't, at least nothing worth, worth saying. So yeah, I, a litmus test for it or, or some kind of easy way to tell if someone has true humility, that's very hard. It doesn't diminish the importance of that virtue. And I think the same goes for most, most virtues. Um, I mean, I'd say subjectively and objectively, right? I mean, you, the subjective humility is almost, I mean, it's very difficult to discern a human heart, right, before God. Um, objectively, I think there's concrete things that politicians can do which are objectively humble. F favor term limits, <laughs> you know. Uh, you know, uh, not, want, not want the state to do anything that is, um, that usurps the proper role of another, as, as Stephen was talking about, subsidiarity. Th these are objectively humble things to say, I have a vocation to politics, but politics isn't everything. Politics isn't meant to take over people's lives. It isn't meant to determine how children should be raised. These are not things that politics should do. And objectively, the humble statesman recognizes that, and that recognition is itself an objective sign of humility that we can judge. And we can say, this is a statesman who is properly humble because he recognizes the limits of the state and the limits of his office and the limits and possibilities of politics. Um, yeah, just to add that our, our own sort of problematic conception of what we expect from our, or problematic expectations for our politicians contributes to this. We expect all our, uh, our, our representatives to be responsive to their constituents, to us, to the people they work for, right? You work for us. We also expect them to be leaders and to stand on principle and never compromise. Mm -hmm. And, and we, we expect all these things that are, that are we, don't, we don't acknowledge that they're intention, let alone that they're contradictory. Do you want someone who's going to compromise and, you know, Grease, grease the political skids to get done what needs to get done, or do you want someone who's going to sort of rally around the flag and stand tall? And sometimes, you know, someone who's responsive to their constituents takes cues from someone else. He doesn't always drag them along and show them which way to go, and we expect both at the same time, and that's not very realistic um, a lot of times. Um, so I think we, we contribute to this. Politicians act this way in response to what we expect of them. These things of uh, humility and honor and vocation to politics. Sorry. Uh, do you think they can, I mean, if, if someone like that were to emerge, do you think either of the dominant political parties would accept that type of person? Or would that person last in the current political environment or for the next four or five election cycles? or 
do we need to, to get virtuous vocation, uh, vocation politicians, statesmen, <coughs> with a bigger support group of their own that would be able to understand each other and work together in order to make, have more of a voice. Because I think that any individual state person coming out of a great family is going to get chewed up in either, either political party. Yeah, well, that's the political chicken and the egg question, right? I mean, what comes first, the virtuous citizenry or the virtuous leaders? Um, I, I, I think it's important to say this, too. Um, there's nothing about uh, sharp-elbowed politics that's antithetical to a good statesman. A good statesman, part of, making, part of being a good statesman means that someone will have the, the wisdom and the savvy and the prudence. We haven't talked much about that virtue, but that's the virtue of a statesman. Uh, right judgment. They will be able to handle difficult situations, and it's not—it's not impossible. Now, if all the people ever want is you know bread and circuses, well, you know, well then that's a bigger problem that's not going to be solved by just a, a good statesman. Isn't that but, where we are? I don't know. I don't. Know. It, it, <laughs> but 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 here's the thing: if it is, then the solutions aren't really the political solutions aren't very viable. If it's not, then we need to work for a solution. And and until we're 100% certain, you know, uh, that 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 we are at a, sort of beyond the point of return, we have the obligation to work within the system we have in order to make it better. We might fail, we might not succeed, but that doesn't excuse us from from doing everything we can to 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 work. As I said, to, with the world as we find it, not the one as we wish it would be. I think it's also important to bear in mind that it's not just the presidential level, right? Um, mm -hmm. A couple of weeks ago, I was at an event here in town I so didn't want to go to. It was at the Capitol Hill Club and, and you know, it was as partisan politics as you can get on that block. Um, and it turned out to be one of the most inspiring things I had been to in a while. Um, and you had Anna Eshoo, a, a Democrat, a congresswoman, and Jeff Fortenberry, a Republican, who were both being, um, being um, getting awards for, for defending religious liberty abroad, specifically genocide. And, and the two of them talked about the importance of, of their faith, and they obviously have a, they've cultivated a beautiful friendship on Capitol Hill based on their, their common faith. And, and I was reminded, you know, as, as cynical as we can get about, about presidential politics and national level stuff, you know, you've got, you've got good people coming mm -hmm. at, you know, Anna Eshoo talked about her, because uh, Carl Anderson from the Knights of Columbus was also getting an award, and she talked about the Knights of Columbus and her dad and how important her dad was into, in, in, um, in encouraging her to be in the, in the public square and go into politics. And so, it, I mean, it, it hit on, on all of your points, and, and both of your points um, in so many ways. And, and, but you really were reminded, you, know, you send a good person to Congress, that's still plausible, that still happens. Um, there are a lot of good people in Congress who came from good families and went to good schools and have, have virtues. And so, yeah, the question is then, you know, on, on the presidential level, do people get eaten up? Well, yeah, probably for the time being. But, um, but if, uh, if you uh, keep raising kids and, and, and sending them to good schools, and, and, and if we become a culture that, that encourages these things rather than discourages or misunderstands, 
um, then we may we may just get somewhere different. Yeah. Um, just Vir losing thoughts, minute. Virtue is important for civil servants too. I mean, not everyone who who serves the, the public interest does so in an elected position. I mean, this town knows that. But there's there's um, there are a lot of ways to shape politics into and policy and to serve the common good um, that, that that don't mean putting your name on a ballot. Um, and, and I think I think I think sometimes a lot of the people who are inclined or would be capable of doing a lot of good sort of um, you know I don't want to be a, some some bureaucrat the, the bureaucracy is all liberal or whatever I think there's a sort of uh, look if you walk away from if we walk away from the problem um, it's not going to get better if we engage if we engage the battle and this is true of all of all our political battles and all our cultural battles if we engage the battle joyfully, um, knowing that the war is already won. We may get slaughtered this time, but the war is already won. We engage the battle and we have the courage to do that. Um, then, then we'll be doing what we need to do. Uh, we don't have to see, we know the end. We don't have to see what comes immediately next or, or just after that. Um, uh, we, we do as best as we can to see that so we can judge well. But, um, we have to we have to to engage the the challenges that that are ours to engage and not shirk that duty um, because it seems hopeless. The whole Christian story is is one of of hope arriving right when when there seemed to be no hope. That's the Christian story, and it, it applies to politics as much as it does. And else. we also have to approach it prayerfully. I think we forget about that part of it. We we pontificate about politics and. Um, but we're not necessarily spending as much time praying about it and praying that, that people feel called That's right. um, yeah. as a vocational mm -hmm. uh, a matter to politics. I mean, I tell my students this great Chesterton line about virtue having all the thrill of vice, and they resonate with that. I, I think there is something contagious about virtue and talking about virtue, and um, I find it is something which is liberating to say, you know, what the virtues are and to speak about the virtues, but also to speak about our capacity to reason together. And that we, we have a rational capacity. What we see in the public square right now is very bad attempts to reason together. <laughs> and I think, you know, it's not accidental, I think, that our themes come back to education because I think we're not educating people to say, uh, look, you have the intellectual potential to solve these challenges in your society. Um, and it's, it's by approaching the, the social challenges, which have to do with virtue and the family and education, that we're going to have a, a way into getting a better politics. As we all know, politics is kind of downstream. And so we, we need a, a kind of intellectual verve to, to tackle the problems at a social level um, and um, and that there's an adventure in that. There's a thrill in that to say, we've got it within our capacity to do that um, and that the knock-on effects are gonna be good for politics. Well, thank you everyone.